11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Do you believe in miracles? With that one question, uh, Al Michaels delivered what might be the most famous call in sports history. Some of you guys knew exactly what that was the moment it pops up, popped up there. Some, some of you guys were like, why is that so grainy and not in HD? I don't understand what, uh, what, that, what that is there. But that, that clip that we just saw was the crowning achievement of uh, the 1980 U.S. Olympic team defeating the Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union. And Al Michaels delivers his famous line, do you believe in miracles? And it's a good question for us this morning. Do you believe in miracles? Now, the answer to that question is dependent as much on our definition of a miracle as it is uh, on our actual ability to, to believe in one. Uh, so so we, we've got to work a little bit with our definition. What is uh, a miracle at, at all? Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 4. It's where we're going to be this morning. We're in the middle of our series, Prophets and Kings. Uh, and we're talking about primarily the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And if you know their ministries, you know that their, their ministries are marked by their miracles. And, and for us this morning, we've got to figure out what do we do with these stories? What do we do with these stories that seem a little odd, that we don't have kind of firsthand experience with similar things? What do we do with these things? And we begin by asking the question, what is a miracle? Is a miracle limited when something unexpected happens that seems contrary to the laws of nature? If so, then uh, our definition of a miracle is both highly limited and frankly not in line with what the Bible deems as miraculous. Uh, It doesn't seem to work uh, uh, in those ways. It's not even against the laws of nature necessarily. Look at the plagues that affected Egypt. Almost all of those are perfectly explained by seemingly natural occurrences. Unexpected can be a part of the miracle, but not always. After all, Moses told Pharaoh what was going to happen. He said, if you don't do this, then these things are going to happen. And and Jesus predicted his own resurrection numerous times. And so no one should have been surprised by that, even though all the disciples were. They were all expected. So uh, unexpected and unnatural are not necessarily uh, the, the right way to describe a miracle. Perhaps your definition of a miracle is more in line with that of Miracle Max, a pill that helps those that are mostly dead, uh, but not so much those that are all dead. That is a Princess Bride reference, if you guys don't know that. So maybe those that I lost with the hockey reference, I picked you up with the Princess Bride reference here. Uh, But in that case, miracles happen all the time. If that's your definition, it helps those that are mostly dead. And they happen all around us through things like doctors and medicines and scientific discovery. It's the essence of things that are normal, yet extraordinary. Pregnancy, flight, hockey victories. Those things are things that we deem as miracles. The person with eyes of faith sees those things as miracles. The skeptic sees those things not as miracles, but evidence that whether or not God exists, he isn't needed. Because after all, man can reproduce all of those things. So maybe it's a miracle, maybe it's not, but it doesn't matter. We don't need God for it. So how do we define what a miracle is? 
As post-enlightenment, rationalist, Western Christians, our theology of miracles here in the West, here at Providence Church in Jefferson City, is is usually going to be one of two things uh, generally for the church here in the West. Either woefully underdeveloped and almost ignored, or in my opinion, the view of miracles is way out of proportion to how Scripture views miracles and overemphasized to 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 the point of completely missing the point. And so when we talk about miracles, the question becomes, do miracles still happen today instead of what do these miracles tell us about who God is? And so what I want to do this morning, I'm not going to answer all of these questions that I've, that I've posed. It's a great thing for you to talk about in your discipleship groups. It's a great thing to do in Bible study on your own. How do you define a miracle? What is a miracle? And how do those work? And how do those work today? I'm not going to answer all of those. I don't pretend to answer our, our full theology of miracles th- this morning. But what I do hope for us to be able to leave with this morning is a better understanding of why we have these miracles in Scripture, which is a far more important question, uh, at least in my opinion, than the debate on whether miracles happen today. A far more important thing for us to talk about is why these things happen. If we understand why these things happen, and you understand the why, then the, the what of miracles miracles kind of falls into place, even, even today. So that's what we're going to do. Now, i got a lot of scripture that I'm going to read this morning. We're going to read, a, I, I honestly can sit here and just read all of chapter 4 uh, of Second Kings. I could do that this morning, and that would be helpful for us. But in order to kind of cut down and save time, I'm going to bounce around just a little bit. But I'm going to read almost this whole chapter with just a few kind of things to say in between before we start really talking about it, all right? So Second Kings chapter 4, Verse 1, it says the ministry of Elisha. Elijah has been taken up into heaven, and this is really kind of the first full-throated, here's Elisha on the scene. Now the wife of one of these sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. And then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went in from him and she shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another And then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on the rest. Now, if you were here with us for uh, the beginning of Elijah's ministry, whenever he began his ministry, so much of what we read in uh, Elisha's stories are going to sound kind of like echoes of uh, Elijah's ministries. And so this sounds very familiar to what we read in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17, but which is really one or two small differences, but differences that teach us a little bit about the purpose of these miracles. In the middle of, so, so we have this story where uh, she, she, she gets this oil, fills up the jars, and just kind of keeps on going. As many empty jars as she can find, the oil keeps kind of miraculously re- reproducing itself and filling up more jars. So that's basically what happens here in this first story. In the middle of the chapter, if you move on from this story, we have, we'll come back to this one in just a few minutes. We have the story of a woman, different than the first woman, uh, and different than the widow at Zarephath, the one that Elijah helped. This woman is wealthy. 
And she has seen Elisha traveling back and forth and, and doing things. And she tells her husband, hey, we need to open up our home. We need to create a space for this man, the man of God, the prophet of God. We need to create a space for him. Uh, and, and, and we need to allow him a place to lodge whenever he passes through and whenever he's around and whenever he needs to stick around. We need to offer this. And Elisha is tremendously grateful for the hospitality that she shows. And he offers to repay her and says, would you like for me to go and talk to the king on your behalf? Would you like to me, for me to talk to the commander of the army? He's kind of name dropping just a little bit and says, would you like for me to do these things for, for you? And she says, no, nah, I'm good. No thanks needed. Just, just, just enjoy the space is basically all she says. And Elijah insists and tells her that she'll become pregnant with a son. She had no heir for uh, the money and for, the, and for what she had and he insists that she'll be pregnant with a son. Uh, she gets pregnant, has a son. But then the story takes kind of an unexpected turn when years later, this son that she never asked for, and she's very clear she never asked for this, uh, uh, that son dies. And this woman, named, known as the Shunammite woman, uh, sins for Elisha and demands that he come and help her. This is where we pick up the story in verse 32 of chapter 4. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. And so he went in and he shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And then he got up again and walked once, walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And then he summoned Gehazi, that's his assistant, and said, Call this Shunammite, call the woman. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. So she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, and then she picked up her son and went out. So again, this is echoes of Elijah's ministry in 1 Kings chapter 17, where uh, he brought the widow's son back to life. We have this story here where another son is dead and is brought back to life. This clear pattern of Elisha's miracles, familiar to us, yet not exactly the same. But here's the thing, as we read these miracles, like I give you this part of the story, and I know I skipped a little bit there, but what's interesting in these stories is nowhere are we ever told what to make of these stories. They're just kind of given to us like, hey, here's these things that Elisha did. Cool, huh? Like that's pretty much all that there is to it. There's just not much given to us. We're never told what to make of them. The author clearly sees these stories as amazing, as miraculous, as standing out in Elisha's ministry. That's why he shares them with us. But we're never told what to think about them. We're never told what to make of them. Let's go look at one more. Actually, it's two more in one story here. Let's look at uh, these stories. Skip down to verse 38 of 2 Kings chapter 4. Totally different scene, totally different story. So three different scenes, different story here. And Elisha came to Gilgal where there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, sit on the large pot and boil the stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered, them, gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up and, and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. And while they were eating the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there's death in the pot. And they cried out, or, and they could not eat it. And he said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. So this is not just a matter of uh, a bad chef. This is not just a matter of a guy who can't cook. 
been there. He found something out in the woods, and he didn't know what he was putting in there. He just put whatever was in there. And whatever it is, I don't know if it just smelled foul. I don't know if it was exactly what made them know. But they knew, if we eat this, this is not going to go well for us. Now, I've had some chili like that before, but this is a little different here. I think it might really be bad for them if they eat this. It might really be the end of them. Uh, and so they're like, we can't do this. Elisha said, don't worry about it. Throw some flour in there. The flour doesn't have anything in and of itself that fixes things. It's not like it binds up the, the poison or whatever. It's, it's a, a Elisha doing something that then purifies the stew. And then we have this, this, uh, this next story. And a man came from Bel Shalisha. I practiced that and still got it wrong. Bring the man of God, the... Bring the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? It's not nearly enough food for them. So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. And so, and so he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. So Elijah purifies uh, this stew, and then he takes these loaves of bread that aren't enough, multiplies them so that over 100 men uh, can eat, way more than what they should have. Elisha doesn't just do what is asked, which is pu- to, to purify the stew. He makes sure that there's enough stew for everyone to eat. He doesn't just, uh, he doesn't just take the, the loaves that are offered to him as a first fruits offering as uh, this prophet. Instead, he takes the, the loaves and he multiplies them so that there would be enough for everyone. There would be some left over. He said they, they had some left He provided through his miracles more than was asked or required. So that's four different stories in the span of four chapters. And we're going to go through a lot. The story of Elijah and Elisha is Elijah performed seven miracles. Elisha performs 14 that are recorded for us. If you remember, Elisha, before Elijah is taken away, Elisha asked for a double portion of what uh, Elijah had received. And we see that play out in the miracles that are recorded for us. So it's four different stories uh, and I could probably do a little devotion on, uh, or four different miracles, three stories, and I could probably do a little devotion on each of these stories this morning. I could probably pull a little bit out of there. I don't know what to make out of the fact that the kid sneezed seven times. I don't know if there's some sort of like hidden meaning in there. We're not told what that is. I don't, maybe there's something to some of these kind of things in there, but we're never told any of this stuff. And now I could pull out from there some things about the, the, the faith of the Shunammite woman, and I could pull some things that would help us to understand a, a few different things about the way God works. We could talk about her hospitality. We could talk about the faith of the, the, the widow for, uh, for her oil that was multiplied, just like the widow uh, for Elijah. We could talk about all of these things, and maybe that is there. But honestly, what I want to do is I want to back up and kind of take a bigger picture view of what is going on in all of these seemingly unrelated moments here in chapter 4. That when something happens that seems to be extreme and out of the ordinary, God is trying to teach us something about who He is, and I think about the nature of this world we live in and about the kingdom of God. Why would, the, why would the narrator give us these amazing stories? Stories that he clearly sees that stand out, but not tell us what we should learn. Why would he not just give us our flannel graph Sunday school lesson for us to be able to take something home and say, oh, that's good, I just need to have faith like her. 
I just need to believe like him. I just need to be able to, to do this, and then I would be able to do this. And again, there's undoubtedly things we can learn about generosity and hospitality and faith of, uh, of these women and, and these men in this chapter. I could probably preach a whale of a Mother's Day message about the faith of women from these two passages, but I think there's something bigger for us that we would, we would, we would make a mistake if we limit these miracles to just that application. And so I want to zoom out just a little bit and figure out what these miracles serve, how, why they are there in the first place. You'll often hear that, that miracles are, uh, are things that God uses to kind of authenticate a messenger, right? So miracles are something that show up in certain places for God to say, this is my guy and here's how I'll show you. Moses, Elijah, uh, Elisha, Jesus, that these are the people that God is authenticating their message because of uh, the miracles. They, they are used by God uh, and, and by a prophet to, to kind of show that they're legit. It's God's stamp of approval, that only someone sent by God could do the things that they are doing. And certainly that's said of Jesus in the Gospels. And that's almost certainly a part of the role that miracles play in God's kingdom. But we greatly underestimate the purpose of miracles if we limit them to that. They are doing something more. You see, miracles are used to tell the story of the kingdom of God. Right? So that's what I want, to, that's what I want you to hang on to here. I'm not giving you like a full-throated definition. I just want you to kind of keep that idea in mind. Miracles are used to tell the story of the kingdom of God. To kind of give us a window into what God's kingdom is really like. So let's start with the second one here, the Shunammite woman. Her faith is undoubtedly remarkable. Her willingness to stand up and be counted among the people of God and to provide for the prophet is obviously commendable. It's something that we should seek to replicate and we should seek to do ourselves. But this, her, her story is not about some reward for her faith. After all, we know plenty of people that, uh, that, that, that had great faith that weren't rewarded the same way that she is. If you go and you read in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, it talks about two different types of people. It talks about those that shut the mouths of lions and those that had these miraculous ministries that we tell these great stories of. But then it also talks about in the second half of Hebrews chapter 11, those that, uh, uh, those that, that, that didn't shut the mouths of lions but instead were sawed in half. And so we can't just stand up here and say, if you had faith, then you get to shut the mouths of lions. And if you don't have faith, then you get sawed in half. What Hebrews 11 says is, those that have faith, both fates await them. Right? So we can't just stand up here and say, if you have faith, God will reward you with these things. Not only does that heap an enormous amount of pressure on us to try and do good things to earn God's favor, it also puts an enormous amount of condemnation that if you are without, if you are suffering, if you are dealing with, as this woman was, infertility and those things, that perhaps that is somehow God's punishment on you for a lack of faith. But that is nowhere communicated in Scripture, and nowhere is that taught that way. Instead, what, we're, what, what we see is that God chooses to work in certain ways in certain places because of how he sovereignly chooses and, and wills. And we are not in control of how he decides to do that. So for Elisha, he recognizes in this, in this woman her need and her desire for a son, even though it's unspoken. We know from the opening pages of Scripture that, that 
that things like infertility and pain in childbearing are not how this world is supposed to be. They are the outworking of the curse. So part of what Elisha is doing in prophesying about a son is setting right what the curse had broken. It's restoring things to how they're supposed to be. This is the way miracles work. It's restoring things to their natural order, right? We see this, we see this in, in how Elisha brings the boy back to life. We tell ourselves that death and sickness are natural, just part of this world, and that's true. They are part of this world, but they aren't natural. These things are a part of the fall. Just like when Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead, when Elijah brings the widow's son back, and when Elisha brings the son of the Shunammite woman back, each time they are setting back what, got, what, what had been broken by the fall. They are giving us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. You see, we can assume because all we experience and all we know is sickness and disease and death, and infertility, we know these things as a part of this broken world, we can assume that those things are normal and those things are just how it is. But the reality is, is that miracles show us this is how it's supposed to be. These things that we deal with, sickness and death and all of these things, these things are a part of the curse and not how it's supposed to be. So miracles work to set things right. Miracles work to set things how they should be. It's a picture of the kingdom of God. And then we have these two other stories, totally unrelated. Yet here they sit in the same chapter, no commentary, telling part of the same story. Now I want you to see for us, I want you to see these two key things in these two stories that I think kind of sum up what's going on in Elisha's ministry, that point us eventually to the ministry of and the life of Jesus. So let's go back to the first one. So this story, the widow has to go out. And what Elisha says is, hey, you've got some oil in your house. Go out to your neighbors, borrow some, 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 some containers. Not too few. I like how he says that. Don't be afraid. Load up. Get all the containers that you can get. I know you don't think you have a need for them, but go get all the containers that you can get. Bring in the containers, and then when you get the containers, start filling them up with that one pitcher that you have of oil. Keep filling them up. And so she does that. And she gets jars and more jars and more jars. And what happens is she gets those jars and she starts pouring. And she takes another one and she starts pouring. And she takes another one and she starts pouring. Then she takes another one and she starts pouring. And it just keeps going. She doesn't know how. She doesn't know why. She just keeps going. She fills up all these jars and they keep going until eventually the son says, there's no more. Neighbors have got nothing else left. This is all that we've got. And what she ends up with is not only enough for her to pay off her debts and to save her sons from slavery, she's given enough to live on after that. God provides for the initial request and then some. He gives the initial request and then a little bit more. An overabundance of blessing. And it's not just that she, she, she has her needs met, but that she has more left over. So now go down to the end of the chapter and you have the story of the, the workers and the stew. The initial request is to purify the stew so that it doesn't kill anyone. And then what follows is, is a man who brings his offering to uh, Elisha, and Elisha then takes that offering, a decent offering that is given here, first fruits offering, 
but nothing near enough to feed an army of 100 men. And Elisha uses it to feed all 100 men, despite the, the unbelief and really the doubt of his servant. Uh, he, he uses it to feed them all. So again, we have the picture of an initial need being met, and then what does it say? Enough that there was still some left. Right? There was still some left over. These miracles are also a window into the kingdom of God. An opportunity to see things as they should be. And this is what Elisha's ministry teaches us. You remember what I told you Elisha's name means and how it kind of shifts from Elijah's name? Elijah's name means that God is one, that, God, that Yahweh is God. But then Elisha, his name means that God, that God is salvation. That he is our salvation. Our God saves. And this is the picture that we're given here in these stories, but on a different scale than I think you probably recognize if you take these stories individually. There are others in the Bible that have, the, have a name that means the same thing as Elisha's, that are remarkably close. Joshua's name means God saves. And that's the same thing that Jesus' ministry teaches to and the same thing that his name means. Elisha's ministry, uh, as we'll see several times in the next few weeks, should point us straight to Jesus' ministry, should take us straight to him. So what I want to do now is instead of breaking down each of these different miracles, I want to move to Jesus' ministry to a story that most of you probably know I'm going to guess all of you have probably heard some measure of this story, but with one detail that you've probably missed. It's in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. If the multiplied loaves didn't already bring your, to mind this story, then we're just going to go ahead and explicitly read it here and talk about it. You know what's interesting about Matthew chapter 14? I, I didn't even realize this as I was putting these stories together. What's interesting in Matthew 14, a book... Matthew writing to Jews so that they understand who Jesus was. The chapter begins by talking about the death of John the Baptist. It talks about the death of John the Baptist, who we know was kind of a fulfillment of the ministry of Elijah, the forerunner to Jesus, and Elijah the forerunner to Elisha. So, so, so this first story is the, the, the story we're going to read right now is the first story Matthew gives us post John the Baptist, i.e. post Elijah, i.e. Elisha. You see how all that works together? This is the first story here in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came, healed their sick. Again, windows into the kingdom of God, how it's supposed to be. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and to buy food for themselves. Send them out to provide for themselves. Have them go do their own work. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring, me him, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. Story could stop right there. It doesn't. 
And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Twelve basketfuls left over. The same pattern is given in Jesus' miracle here that we see in Elisha's. The need is met, and then the abundance is provided. Jesus doesn't, doesn't just multiply the bread and the fish. Can you imagine the scene that day? Close to 10,000 people on a hillside and the disciples have to serve as, as like captains of the buffet here and, and, and de facto kind of hand out all of this food and they know they don't have enough, but every time they reach down into a basket, there's another loaf of bread and a fish to hand out. Every time they reach down there, there's more and they keep reaching down and there's more and they keep, re- this had to take hours to get all this out. This had to take forever to get all of this distributed and it never runs out. It keeps multiplying to the point that it is overflowing with God's blessing, 12 extra baskets full. Now, we don't have time to get into all the, 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 what's represented in those 12 baskets and the tribes of Israel and all that's there. Just know this morning that it's 12 extra baskets. Why provide extra? What's the point in providing extra? God knows what we need. Why not just, wait, he, he knew exactly how many people were on that hillside. Why would he not just provide exactly what was needed? That'd make for a cool story, wouldn't it? And the last person came through the line and I handed him the last loaf of bread. God provided just the right amount. That makes for a cool story. That works. We can do that. But that's not what we're given. It says there's 12 extra baskets left. And I want you to see with me this morning the picture that that gives us about the kingdom of God. He's not just trying to help us get by. He's ready to bless us to the point that jars overflow so that our bread baskets can't hold anymore, so that our wildest imagination can't conceive of what he can do. And he will do it. He's not going to do it. Here's the thing. Listen, this is not some kind of health and wealth gospel. This is not some kind of like, if you, if you have the faith of the Shunammite woman, if you have the faith of this widow, then you get all of this stuff and God takes care of everything to the point where you're just overflowing with abundance and blessing. And you get big houses and big cars and, and you get all these things that you've ever wanted. No, 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 no. That would be about your kingdom. But this is not about your kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God. And so the abundance is about giving us an abundance of understanding and knowing about what the kingdom of God is about. He will do it. He's not going to do it by giving us more for this kingdom or for our kingdom. He's not going to give it by what we we determine we need to build our own kingdoms, but by breaking in and giving us a glimpse here on earth of what his kingdom is like. And what his kingdom is like is that he doesn't just meet our needs. He overabundantly meets our needs. Remember the, the context of chapter 4 of 2 Kings. It's a nation that is falling away from God. It's a nation that has, that has turned its back on God. This is the northern kingdom. Every single king has walked further and further and further away from God. This is, Ahab has just died, but his family's still in charge. That's the context that these miracles take place. They are running as fast as they can away from God. And God is still giving blessings and an overabundance within this place. 
The miracles recorded in this chapter would have functioned to remind God's people of His power to restore His blessings. Blessings forfeited due to just repeated infidelity, repeated covenant breaking. These miracles would have served to say, I'm still the God that provides and provides more than you could ever imagine. Even in the midst of famine or the death of a husband, the Lord can and will provide. He can make the barren woman fertile and restore life by the power of the resurrection. This is what chapter 4 tells us. He can take a poison stew and make it whole and clean again. But this isn't about these individual people. He's telling the story of the kingdom of God. And of course, we aren't just talking about individual miracles in the Bible We aren't talking about these individual things. All of these prophets serve to point us to Jesus. And the greatest miracle of all isn't that God would bring back sons from the dead or provide food from, from next to nothing. That is not the greatest miracle for us to consider here. It's that that any of us, that any of our hearts would hear these stories and we would hear the stories of what Jesus has done And we would respond with faith of a Shunammite woman that says, I believe that you can heal and I believe that you can do this. A woman whose son was dead and believed God could raise him back to life. The greatest miracle is that we would look in our own hearts, realize the death and the the darkness that is there, and that we too would believe that God could resurrect something from within us. For us, it's not someone else that has our focus. It's not these stories that has our focus. It's our own dead hearts in need of salvation. The greatest miracle of all is that God would change our hearts and that he wouldn't just provide for us what we need in Jesus, but he would provide it in abundance. We said this on Easter Sunday. We quoted from Hebrews chapter 7. He doesn't just save us. He saves us to the uttermost. He doesn't just give us exactly just this little bit. He gives us an overabundance. He comes and he pulls our dead hearts to life and he breathes life into us and we are now a new creation. He doesn't turn his back on us just like he doesn't turn his back on the nation of Israel. He constantly works with them and he constantly is there for them and he constantly does, uh, and he, he, he he doesn't just walk away from them even though he would have been fully righteous and just to do so. The story isn't just that he saves, but he saves to the other most. The story isn't just that he saves the nation of Israel, but that he comes for us Gentiles too. This is the story of the, the overflowing 12 baskets, right? He doesn't just provide for the nation of Israel, his chosen people, but there's enough left over for us all. We are the overflow of God's graciousness. Friends, if you call yourself a Christian, then you have no choice but to believe in miracles today. Do miracles still happen today? Absolutely. Do they still look like they did for Elisha? Sort of. I mean, perhaps they feel a little bit different, but the agenda is still the same. It's for us to see the kingdom of God, to fix what is broken, to restore what has been taken, to help us see his kingdom come. 
Miracles are a stunning glimpse of what we have had robbed from us in the fall. They let us see into the beauty of what God has created and what we have lost through our sin. And so when miracles happen, when your dead heart starts beating, whenever your dead heart confesses your sin, turns to Christ, and now has a new life, whenever baptism happens and we say that you are, you are, you are buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life forever, whenever that picture is given to us, that is a picture of a miracle where God said, dead is now alive where the kingdom of God was dominated by the kingdom of self, and the kingdom of self was crucified to Christ, and now I live and I walk and I glorify for the kingdom of God. It's a stunningly beautiful glimpse of heaven. Those are what, that's what the miracles do. So do miracles happen today? Absolutely, I think they do. Do they look like Elijah and Elisha? Most of the time not, but maybe I mean, the, the, the story of, of the history of, of how God works in this world is that there are times whenever these things happen a lot, and there are places where these things happen a lot, and then there are, are long periods of silence, and there are long periods where it doesn't seem like God's doing anything. Where are we at in that? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Here's the thing. God doesn't say, here's the schedule of how I'm going to work. He says, I'll work when I work, but all of my work is about showing you the kingdom of God and glorifying me. So anywhere that we are in a place where we glorify God, it is a a miracle. Where we can get a glimpse into the kingdom where the curse is no more. Where infertility, death, slavery, and hunger are no more. Where your sin is no more. Can you think of a greater miracle than that? That your sin is no more. Not just that your sin that you've committed is taken from you, but your sin is gone. As, as, as the song Blessed Assurance says, perfect submission, all is at rest. Can you think of a greater miracle than that? But it's what's promised for us. It's the miracle that is ahead of us. Where the abundance of God is among us and within us. So whatever you make here of, of, of Second Kings, whatever you make of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, don't get so caught up in these individual stories that you're trying to replicate them in your own life and force God's hand to bless you in the same way that he worked then. Get with the agenda of what God has for the miracle. And the agenda is to praise God, to lift him up, to glorify him, and to show the world the kingdom of God. You get with that agenda... I'm going to bet, I'm going to bet you'll walk away and you'll say, I've seen God do miraculous things. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, the fact that we stand here and pray, the fact that we stand here and call you Lord, the fact that we stand here and say that we want to glorify you with our hearts and with our lips, that we want to worship you in spirit and in truth is truly a miracle. It is absolutely a miracle that any of us would, would, would turn from our wicked ways, that we would turn to you and that we would cast our sins upon you. It is, it is truly a, a miracle that we would come and we would say that your kingdom is what matters, that your kingdom come, that your will be done, not ours. That is truly a miracle. Help us not to take that for granted as though it's just something that should happen because we went to church and we grew up in the South. No, it is a miracle that 
that anyone would call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Father, I pray that we would have the same agenda of Elijah, the same agenda of Elisha, the same agenda of Moses, the same agenda of Jesus, the same agenda of Paul and Peter, that, that these miracles would, 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 would serve for us not to experience something amazing and revel in the experience for the experience's sake, but instead that it would give us a glimpse into the beauty of the kingdom of God. that you would give us just a taste, just a taste of what we've lost in the fall with our sin, in the muck of this world. So do we pray for miraculous things? Absolutely. We want want to taste that more. But most of all, Father, we pray that we would glorify you in all of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.